morning, let us, let us pray in regards to this amazing and beautiful text that is before us this morning. Father God, we do come before you because we are fools if we do not. How foolish and wise for us to come to your word this morning as if though it had not the power of God unto salvation. If it, hadn't, if it had not, as if it had not been written by your directing and guiding at all. Lord, it is a holy and righteous thing, your word. Be with us this morning as we sit under its teaching. Be with the preacher, be with the pastor, be with the voice that is speaking. Lord, I pray that you would take away all distraction from the mind in order for your word to be clearly presented to your people. For all of us who are listening and hearing, including the one who speaks and preaches, Lord, I pray that your word would not go void in our hearts, our minds, lives, and our souls, Lord, that we would not depart from it. It would not depart from us as you say that your word would not do. Be with us now as we sit under its teaching. We love you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated this morning. Well, this morning we have before us a, a sermon in which I've titled, Submit Your Resume to God. And so that's for you to think through, submit your resume to God. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, had to fill out a resume. Have you, anybody does resumes, right? I've got a resume here, okay? Uh, mine only takes one page. No, it's, it's the resume. We, we, we do this often. If you're a student, you may not have done this. Maybe you're a teenager, you're getting ready to do resumes for uh, school, I mean, uh, for, for work. Some of you in college, I guess you could look at it as filling out a resume for schools that you're applying for as well. But you see, when we seek to do a resume... We're usually making one or writing one for a uh, perceived, uh, maybe a new job of sorts. We usually must submit this resume in order to get in the front door. These resumes that we fill out and send to people like employers is to be able to say, look, uh, this is something about me. This is, this is something I wish you to know about me in order to get the attention of those who are giving jobs or giving position. Ultimately, when we write a resume, we are saying to those uh, so named that I am qualified. We're saying and feeling out, I can do these things. We say, I am capable. Choose me out of all the others that you have on your desk. Our resume says, here's what sets me apart from everyone else. This is why I feel as if I am up for the task. I remember when I was uh, in the military, and I've always had a hard time writing resumes because you just kind of have to sell yourself. I'm not, I've never been a really good at selling myself, right? I just, I'm not, I just don't do very well at that. And so when you have to do a resume, you have to like brag a little bit. You have to say, hey, look, this is what I've done. This is what I can do. This is, hey, I've done this. I've done this. I've worked with this. I remember being in the military, we have to write reports, quarterly reports. And if you write reports, oftentimes those reports would give you uh, brownie points in regards to your unit for when you get a position or promotion faster or rank. And I remember when I was in the military, uh, there's just some words that I, I always chuckled at every time I had to write a report about myself. And you'd, I remember one word like this. Um, uh, uh, Kyle, or Schiff, we always go by last names, was instrumental. Big words like Instrumental. And I'm not saying that what I didn't do wasn't instrumental at some point in life, but most of the time, it was associated with picking up sandbags and placing them somewhere. Kyle was instrumental in this thing. 
Kyle acted without, without hesitation, which usually meant did not run away or desert. Words like he was exceptional meant did pretty regular work. Words like sacrificially meant did what he was told. <laughs> I mean, in regards to some of the language that I would use to write, you know, this, uh, this quarterly report, I mean, I could clean a toilet and it was still worthy of a Medal of Honor, right? Just the language, the way in which you talked about the work in which you did. After writing a review of myself, uh, typically other people within your unit would write about you too because if you looked good for the unit, or excuse me, if you looked good within the unit, you made the unit in the military look comp all of it good. So you'd have superiors and officers or, 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 or those in the chain of command, they would write things about you. And when you read what they wrote about you, oftentimes, I have to be honest, when I read my own reports and when I read their reports, sometimes I thought that I was pretty good. I, I mean, I was like, man, is this me? Like, they should be making movies about me. Rambo, sit down, right? You see, this morning, what I want you to know is that we are going to see from Philippians 3, 1 through 11, just how important it is for us to have, listen, a strong resume before God. Yes. Yes. And if you hear me say something, you're going to have to wait to the end of, let me complete it, okay? Don't you run, I heard what he said, write your resume. No, you want, you need, you're going to have to have, you will, a strong resume before God. In other words, what is written down upon your resume, figuratively speaking, is of vital importance and standing before God. So this morning, what I want us to do as we uh, navigate through this text, I want you to see there are three points or three uh, things I wish to highlight as we step through this text together. And they should be up there on your screen this morning. And these are the three steps. These are the three things I wish for you all to see. Uh, number one, if you're taking notes, is this. Paul gives a word of warning for resume writers. Yes, Paul gives a word of warning for resume writers. We'll see this in verses 2 and 3. Uh, point 2, Paul gives his own resume before God. God. Paul says, hey, look, I want to read you mine. We see this in 4 through 6. Number 3, Paul's resume receives an upgrade. And we'll see this in 7 through 11 specifically, but, or 7 through 11, but 7 through 8 specifically. So this morning, these three, Paul gives a word of warning for resume writers. Number two, Paul gives his own resume before God and others. Number three, Paul's resume receives an upgrade. Let's look at point one. Let's look at first, verses two through three specifically. And it says there once again in the text, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, the glor and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, first off, what I want you to know is who he's writing to. Uh, he's writing to the church of Philippi, but what he's writing about are, is a group of people known as, we've come to know them as the Judaizers. Uh, if you remember the, the, the book of Galatians, the, the, the book of Galatians was written to warn the church of Galatia about these individuals, these same individuals. It seemed everywhere that the Apostle Paul went in his missionary journey, in his church planning efforts, he always came in contact with these called the Judaizers. And what made them so dangerous 
is that Paul labeled them, if you remember in Galatians 1, 6, he said the things that they preach, the things that they teach, he said, quote, is another gospel. Another gospel. It means that, and there's not two. It's just that it's another good news, which isn't good news at all. There's only one good news. Apostle Paul said they teach something different. And the reason why it was different, the reason why it was not good news, is because it involved a subtle, yet a very slippery shift. Of one's trust away from Jesus Christ alone for salvation and back upon self. The Judaizers were those who came in and said, hey look, Apostle Paul, the preaching of the the cross, grace, awesome, great. We are for it. We are all about it. They didn't stand in opposition about it, but they said, it's all good and stuff. But but you got to understand, that that, that gospel of grace, that gospel of mercy thing, it, it still needs you to do stuff. It needs you to work and to gain and to have something. You've got to be able to look at yourself and someone and say, look what I've done. You see, the Judaizers, they love, they love to share a little bit of glory with God. They needed to be able to share a little bit of glory with God. They needed their religion and their religiosity and their language to somehow say, Jesus plus equals salvation. The apostolic Math of the day was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. To add anything would to subtract from the work of Jesus Christ, and that was their math. Judaizers were a lot like me in the sense that they weren't good at math, at least not gospel math. I like to think I'm better at gospel math than they were, at least. They had a real problem. It was a slippery situation that is going on. Simply put, They believed and they taught that salvation was found in religion, plain and simple. Do this and then. Be this and then receive. That is what they taught. That's what they believed to their core. Look what verse verse 2 says of them. Look what the Apostle Paul says of them. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The Apostle Paul says, it is they. The word here for dogs is kunis. And in the Greek, what I want you to know is that in the ancient world, this dog, he's not, he's not, it's not like little Fido up in your lap. I've got Liberty, our dog, going, you're so cute. I want to pet you. Or those little puppy videos we see on, on YouTube. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's not what, this is not good. This is in the eastern, excuse me, in, in this culture, in the, near, in the Far East, in the, in during this time, this is not good to be called a dog. You don't want to be called a dog. You see, in the ancient world, most dogs were not cuddly little things that get their own channel on cable. Believe it or not, they did not have uh, pet sections at the local market. They did not. Nor were there many getting x-rays and medicine when they were sick in those days. Chris Bats would have been out of business. Right? He would have had to do camels and sheep and stuff like that, and goats, but... Dogs and cats and parrots, no, no, no more. You see, in this culture, dogs were deemed unclean animals who roamed the streets as scavengers and mongrels. Literally, they would eat trash. They were even known to eat carcasses of the dead in the street. I remember when we lived overseas, Misty, myself, and our family, uh, and visiting and being in a lot of places. As I looked throughout Africa, the, the Middle East, Central and South America, when we lived in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, 
Brothers and sisters, it is very rare. It was a very rare thing to see anybody with a dog on a leash. It was very rare to see them paying money. It's, this, is a, this is a Western, Western cultural thing, and, and, and it's not in the third world. The third world, people are struggling to feed their families and their children in the streets, so they don't feed dogs food. Welcome to America, where our dogs get treated better than the homeless in other countries. It's, just, it's true. It's true. And so what happens is, what happens is, this is what you have before you. The, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, they, these Judaizers who are, are mutilating the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are dogs. Simply put, dogs were deemed unworthy. And here you have Paul calling the Judaizers, the law keepers, by the way, the ones who kept kosher, the ones who kept the rabbinic law. He said that those are the ones who literally feast on the pollution of trash and of rotting meat, they are deemed unclean and unworthy. Brothers and sisters, the religious leaders are considered unclean and unworthy. That's crazy talk. He goes on to say they are dogs. He says they're evildoers. Then he says and he uses the word mutilate. Katatome in Greek. This is a really, really visual and very, very uh, powerful word. It is often used in the Old Testament to refer to pagan religious mutilation in connection to worship. Let me give you an example of this. If you want to turn there with me, you can. I'm going to read it. It's 1 Kings, 1 Kings 18, 27 through 28. 1 Kings 18, 27 through 28. And the scene is set for the prophet Elijah. He is getting, he is on, uh, 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 he's on a quest, he's on a journey, if you will, he's on a mission, and he's going up against Mount Carmel, he's going against the, the 800 to 900 priests of Baal. 800, 400 of them were priests of Baal, 850 of them were the, or excuse me, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. 850 to 900 were there. They were going to, basically, uh, it was a rumble in the jungle, so to speak, on the mountain. It was a fight between all their God, their God and the God of, uh, of Israel, Yahweh, and, and Elijah was one. One against 900. You know the scene all too well. So awesome was this scene that we actually named our firstborn child Elijah because this guy is just cool. He's going up against the priests of Baal, and look what he says. Oh, my goodness. Listen to this. And at noon, they had been crying out to the God. They've been saying, move and work and do. But all of us, we already know the story a little bit, don't we? We know that their gods are dead, right? We just celebrated Easter. There's only one God who's alive, and he is ours. He is Yahweh, he is God. They are calling down uh, help and favors from dead gods. They do not exist, and this is what happens. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. That's not very nice. And this is what he said to them. Cry aloud. Elijah's basically going, hey, why don't, you, why don't you cry louder? For he is a god, small g. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself, which means maybe he's on the potty. He's got to take a pee-pee. Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And it says there in the text in verse 28, and they cried aloud means they cried louder, and they cut themselves after their custom, which means this is what they do. This is how they worshiped their gods. They mutilated themselves. They cut themselves, it says, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Can you imagine this scene? 
900 men cutting themselves, screaming out in blood and agony to their God. And I just, Elijah, I, what? It, I ain't going to be doing that. I don't have to be doing that. And this is what you see. They, are mutil they mutilate the flesh. Their dogs are evildoers. They mutilate. In connection, this word uh, mutilate is in connection with verse 3. Look what it says. We are the circumcision. If anybody knows anything about Jewish culture and custom, what do we know about circumcision? Circumcision is the cutting off of flesh from a male child. And he says, they are mutilation. He says, but we, for we are the circumcision. But listen to, listen to the key. Here's the key. Who worship by the Spirit of God, amen, and glory in Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Paul says, and put no confidence in the flesh. My salvation is not tied to the flesh. It is not tied to something I must do in order to be made right in the presence of Almighty God. That's what Paul is saying. If you remember, these Judaizers were making a great deal of circumcision among the Gentiles. Hey, we know the grace of God is good, uh, salvation is good and everything, but you know what? You need to be circumcised, and you need to keep the law, and you need, you need, you need, you need, you need. Jesus plus something equaled something else. In placing so much emphasis on the works of their religion, they were watering down the reality of the true worship. And that is what we see here before us. It says right here in verse 3, by the Spirit of God and the glory and the glory that is to be found only in Jesus Christ. Theirs was a do and then. It was a works that wrought your salvation. Do, 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 and then. And you know us in this room this morning. We are not a religion of do, 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 and then. We are a religion of done because of him in Christ Jesus. These teachers zealously observed outward religious ceremony and activity. But their hearts had become so detached from God that their actual literal circumcision in the flesh, in their religion, had in a sense actually become uncircumcision. They put so much emphasis on the rule and the law of circumcision that after Jesus Christ has come and paid the price once for all, forever and ever finished and completed and done, that literally if they kept putting so much emphasis on this thing, their circumcision in religion actually had become for them an uncircumcision of the Spirit. It went against everything that they wanted it to be. Paul says to the Philippians, since these men's hearts and actions do not reflect a cleansed heart, their circumcision, in which they placed so much hope, was as meaningless as rituals, as pagan mutilation. Yes. The Apostle Paul is saying this. That if you keep continuing to talk about circumcision of the flesh and the religious religiosity of that outside of the scope of the gospel alone, you are just as much guilty as those pagans so many uh, centuries ago on that mountain crying out to their god, the Baals. It becomes uncircumcision. Trying to get the attention of God in the same way as them. Listen, friends. No ritual, 
No circumcision, no baptism, no communion, going on a mission trip, giving a tithe, showing up to church, walking down an aisle, raising a hand, or volunteer work can transform the heart and appease the guilt we have against a holy and righteous God. Again, look at the picture before us. Apostle Paul says they are dogs, they are evildoers, they are mutilators. Uh, you might as well just call them pagans. Sadly, we can have whole churches filled with such thinking. Teachers who continue to teach such, either by addition or subtraction from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Either licentiousness on one end and legalism on the other end. And or those whose hearts enter in and go to church in much the same way. If, then, and the truth is it's all so sad. When we contemplate the cross in just a minute, as we contemplate the gospel, brothers and sisters, living in that mentality is to me an absolute travesty. It is all so sad. And here's the question. Where is the freedom? Where is the joy and adoration simply given to Jesus Christ as the redeemed in any of that? Remember, God desires worshipers who worship in spirit, which is the seat of emotion. Yes, of course, in the spirit, big S, but spirit is in emotion, it's passion, zeal, and in truth. And that the truth is, what, that is what's to drive our response. Uh, to know God is to know him in truth, and that truth is supposed to, uh, we say orthodoxy, the proper knowledge leads to orthopraxy, which is proper living response what we know of him must be true and when it is true we worship him as such true christians put no confidence in any of these other things they are not seeking the handout of what i can do in religion i, I god i gave you this i showed up it was raining and i let my hair get wet you should I, wink wink god i mean look look how look how committed i am to you i saw one husband you know who you are being absolutely manly i was looking out the window and his wife had her hair all did up and he had his hat off and he was just like doing this with her running with her and i thought to myself that's a real man that was awesome the issue here we're not we're not doing these things in order to say look look what i've done god reward me now no 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 you see for us who are truly have a, a true encounter with jesus christ uh, there or our joy, our hope, our worship and salvation is found wholly in Jesus Christ and God's glory in the gospel alone. Our, our motives have changed. Our reasonings for why we do what we do have changed. We looked at that last week. We don't do things in fear and trembling like lost people do, like pagans do. We do things in fear and trembling because we love God and we do not want our lives to not count for the glory of God who has been so good to us in the gospel. Our motivation has changed. Truthfully, in such actions and attitudes and activity, if it could get us the job, so to speak, if we could do something in order to God say, I need to let that one get the job. If such could be placed upon a resume in order to get God's attention, it, if we could say, look here, I am qualified. Paul makes the case in our text this morning. He says, of all the people who could earn their salvation, of all those who can move to the front line in regards to their resume, he most certainly would have gotten the job of being not only one of the best, the Apostle Paul says, I would have been the best candidate before God. This is ridiculousness. So look with me in point two. 
Paul has this warning against those who are writing resumes according to the flesh. What you can do to make yourselves appropriate in the eyes of God. Now the Apostle Paul says, or here in 2, Paul gives his own resume before God and others as it is in 4 through 6. If you look with me there, for, uh, verse 4, it says um, there this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He said, don't have confidence in the flesh. Don't look to those things. Do not be like the evildoers, the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh. But he says, but if you are going to have any, if you're going to walk, walk that line, if you want to take that stance, he says, uh, let me be your exhibit number A. I'm he. I'm him, he says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, before I go on, what I want you to know is this. Paul says, do you think you're qualified? Sit down and listen to me. Now, what we have next in our text is Paul's uh, scaled-out overview of his own resume before God in the flesh. What we see here in verses 5 through 6, 4 through 6, but 5 through 6 specifically, uh, can be seen as at least seven accomplishments that Paul says, uh, if anyone is going to be made beautiful and, and right in the eyes of God, it would be me. And they point to him being, listen, the quotations here, I love, I love it when I can use quotations, that Paul is awesome before God. Paul goes, let me show you how awesome I am before God. I love the way that John MacArthur broke them down, so I'm just going to give him full credit and say, look, this list is from him. I thought it was really, really good. Look, look, at, this, look at this list. This is what we see in, in verses 5 through 6. He is giving his resume before God. He's given his resume before man. He says, watch and look and see what I've done. Throughout here, if you're looking with me, it says circumcised on the eighth day. This is salvation by ritual. I was stamped. I was called. I mean, I think of uh, many things. I was baptized when I was this, or I was sprinkled as a child. We do this all the, even now. He said, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day of Israel. Bam! God's people. Of the people of Israel, he's salvation by race. Of the tribe of Benjamin, this is salvation by importance and or standing. He goes, me, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Salvation by tradition. To the law, a Pharisee, salvation by religion. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, salvation by sincerity. As to righteousness under the law, can you believe this? This joker, Paul says, blameless. Salvation by human righteousness. That's salvation by human effort. Apostle Paul says, have you read my resume? Look at it. Stare at it. Because if you do, you'll see. If anybody could earn salvation by the hands of man, then I am above all the first in line to get this thing done. I will get the job. Paul holds up his resume and says, listen, if anyone can earn salvation, if anyone can get there with their list of accomplishments, credentials, and, and all these things, it is I. This is exactly how Paul walked around in his early life in religion. Remember, he walked around with his, his chest puffed up, and when it came to the people of God, he persecuted them because he knew that he was true, and they were not. That's what he believed. This was exactly his hope and trust. And yet now Paul establishes from our text how he learned. I'll talk about that in a minute. Or let me say this, how he was made aware that his resume needed a powerful update. Far from being a strong resume, Paul had learned that his list was actually a liability before God and not a strength. 
Number one, we see that he says, put no, put no confidence in the flesh. I have a warning for you who are resume writers in the flesh. Now we see here in two that Paul says in four through six, hey, by the way, if anybody can get there, look at my resume, and he gives it to us now. And now, if you will, with point three, Paul's resume receives a upgrade. I would put here, if you want, the side of it in my notes I have, made worthy. We see this is 7 through 11, but specifically 7 and 8. I want you to read this. Look what he says. 7 through 8, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When you see the sake of Christ, you need to know it, it literally can mean because of Christ. And I like that. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake or because of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake or because of him or due to him. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The statement here, but whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ, truly sums up. The dramatic change that took place in Paul's soul and his mind when he met Christ on that road called Damascus. All his cherished accomplishments that stood in his gain column of his resume, as it were, suddenly became loss, bankruptcy, and liability. Listen, in the face of Jesus Christ, in the splendor of his holiness and righteousness, Remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus to do one thing and do one thing alone. It was to earn his favor before God because he was going after and attacking the people of the way. The gospel way. Jesus Christ in his glory way. And he said, I am going on a task. I, he had, listen brothers and sisters, if you say, I have chosen, well he chose something too. He chose to persecute the church. And on that journey, on the Damascus Road, what happens? Jesus stands before him and says, Paul, boom! Sorry. Tony, I just got you. If you weren't, if you weren't awake, you are now. I watched her. That was the Holy Spirit or you just were scared. <laughs> boom! I'm going to remember that. That was great. Jesus says, do you know who you persecute? It is I, Paul, Christ in whom you persecute. And when Paul beheld the glory and the splendor of Almighty God, I don't even—it couldn't have been as all of his Shekinah because if it had been, he would have died. But Jesus made Himself known. He said, "You will know me." And what do we know about Paul? Is that his eyes became like the blind man's; he could not see. And the man who was puffed up and going out to persecute the church is now groping at the walls, asking for friends to help him find his way. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not look at Paul in that moment and say, Hey, Paul, would you like to be used of me? Would you like to be used? He said, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name's sake. Now, we know about the Apostle Paul that he looked at that moment in his life and he thought to himself, that was all grace, that was all mercy. He didn't say God was mean to me. He said, God saved me. He turned that thing, that which was uh, possibly this thing that we could say, God is mean. And he said, no, God is gracious. He is kind to me. And we see this, that in this moment, all his best in order to please God was what we see in Isaiah 64, 6. It was all his best in order to please God. It was poor, wretched rags. 
Every boast, every work, even his sincerity was nothingness. It was shallow and it was powerless when he came full contact, face to face, eye to eye, with the Savior of his soul, Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus and he says, I have no hope. Dennis Johnson, in, 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 in reference to this very scene, says this. Paul delivered, quote, I quote, Paul deliberately employs banking terminology. In our text, he says gain and loss to dramatize how radically the risen Lord had reversed his whole scale of values. Every deposit that Saul thought he had been making into his account in the presence of God was actually, he now knew, just one more debit. In other words, every action done in the flesh in order to get God's favor, what he thought was, hey, when God judges me on that faithful day, I'm just putting, I'm just putting stuff in there. I'm gonna put that, it's going to my account. And when I stand before God, God's going to be like, why shall I lay you in my kingdom? And he's going to say, have you looked in my bank account? I mean, I've been doing stuff. Yeah, I've got stuff in there. Have you looked in my vault? In the face of Jesus Christ, he now learned that every time that he actually thought he was putting something in his vault for uh, a credit, it was actually a subtraction. It got him no closer to God. It got him farther and farther and farther and farther and farther and farther away from him. The man was bankrupt. He spent all his life in religion only to find out that he had no penny to his name in righteousness. And he says, Therefore, in the face of Jesus Christ, everything that I used to count as uh, meaningful, everything that I thought was going to do me good, he says, I now count them as rubbish. All those things are in the Greek, skubulon, which literally means feces, poo-poo. You don't want it in your pocket. He said it is nothing. He renders it with some of the most strong and most explicit language in the Bible in regards to our good works. My wife is going to get mad at me. He calls it crap. She said, some people's kids can't say that. Okay, just parent them then. Tell them that Pastor Kyle's bad. <laughs> but I need you to understand what it is. It's worthless. Abominable. Dung in comparison. Ritual, race, importance, church tradition, religion, sincerity, and even his goodness, listen, did not impress God one inch. The Apostle Paul learned something that Jesus had said a while before that in Matthew 5.20 when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He had a resume. In the face of Christ Jesus, he learned real quick that his resume was not going to cut it before God. He is now bankrupt. He's sitting there and he says, oh my word, it has all been a sham. He has nothing to account for. So as we see here in our text this morning, as forcefully, as vividly as he can, Paul pronounces the resume, his resume, in which he once rested his confidence, is actually repulsive now to God. And now therefore made even himself repulsed. And we see the two reasons why the Apostle Paul looked at his old resume and was repulsed by it. Because if you look with me, in verse 8 and 9b, there's two reasons. Number one, here's the, here's the two reasons why it was no longer uh, beneficial to him in his sight. Number one. It has to do with knowing. Knowing. In verse 8 says, 
because of the surpassing worth. Surpassing worth. It means it's a worth that far exceeded what he once had. And what is the surpassing worth? What was the great value, Paul says, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? All of that was so inferior to me now having a living and active relationship with Jesus Christ. Knowing him, not just about him, but intimately knowing him. Familial in, in, in nature. So he says, it is nothing to me because of the surpassing worth of now knowing Jesus Christ and him my Lord. In verse 9b, it says, I want you to know that was the knowing, and the other part of this is the receiving. He knew something, and he received something. The receiving says this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. We call this alien righteousness. We don't have it. We can't possess it. Someone else has to give it to us. And he says, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, not by works, but by faith in the one who's done all the work, Jesus Christ. The law in Judaism gave Saul life, he thought. Yet the law of God in the face of Jesus killed him. One law was heavy and tiresome, and the other law freeing, full of peace, and was joy-filled. The cross, brothers and sisters. Romans 3, 19-20 says this. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was for you to try to keep the law, and it basically you look at it in the mirror of God's standard, and you go, I'm not good like him. James 2.10 says, if we, were to keep, if we were to keep all the law but fail at one point, we've broken all the commands of God, because his holy standard is not holy. That's how great and good he is. By that standard, brothers and sisters, I don't care how good you were this week, I don't care how you've been the last 10 years, you're going to be in trouble because you have broken God's law in some way, fashion, or form would automatically call you a lawbreaker. He goes on to say, it stops every man's mouth. More, more than us being able to, to, to justify our actions because of the law, we don't look at the law of God and say, I know I'm going to heaven because have you seen the law of God? Hmm. My wife's hating me right now. She hates it when I get dramatic. She just threw up in her mouth a little bit. But it's true. There's a snubbiness. There's a, there's a, it's a nose in the air sort of way about it. He goes, no, no, no. The law of God was to put every, stop every man's mouth, and the whole world may now be held accountable to God. And then it goes on to say in verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law does not offer hope. The law makes you hopeless. And then he says in Galatians 3.24 that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. It was our schoolmaster until the day of Christ came. The law of God was the mirror which we said we need the Savior. We need a Messiah. The law was supposed to help us understand and know our need of Jesus. You see, in the face of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul had a resume in the face of Jesus Christ, he learned real quick that his resume was not going to get it done. 
but also in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, through faith and hope and trust in all that he has done, he rewrites our resume. He rewrites Paul's resume. And when he puts his resume before God, all that God sees is Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is absolute good news. For there is no tick or tack, no jot or tittle that will get God's attention in the same way, never again, than Jesus Christ alone in the gospel of Christ. There is no resume worth submitting to God if it is not stamped with the blood of Christ. His old resume was not in any way going to impress God. This is our hope. This is our celebration. Here is found devotion. In Jesus is found our great delight. He and he alone writes his or our resume. Our only needed accomplishment, the only thing that you need to be worried about in, in regards to making yourself appropriate to God is not your accomplishments, but the accomplishments of what Jesus Christ has already done. My conclusion, what is on your resume, church? What would you submit in hopes of making the cut? Getting God's favor. Is it Christ? Is it Christ alone? This is to be a living hope. This is not mental assent. You can understand the dogs of the passage gave their assent. They shook their heads and gave amen at the appropriate places. However, in their teaching and in their practice and in their living, they were still far too caught up with resume writing. Remember, God will not share his glory with you. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. I pray that like Paul, and unlike the Judaizers of our text, we will find Christ of supreme worth in all other things as rubbish. Trash in comparison. And may it truly feed our worship and service as a church... In other words, allow the rest of the world see us respond to this truth and this reality. Because he says there in verse 9, that he counts it all rubbish. And in 9 he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Jesus' faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, know him, and the power of his resurrection intimately. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Listen, verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And the only means for which we will attain the resurrection from the dead, at least into eternal life, is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this morning, I'm going to read this one more time, okay? 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, 
count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Is this our song? Is this the theme of your soul? Have you tasted and experienced it and know it well? This morning, we're going to uh, partake in communion with one to another. I'm going to hand it over to you, uh, Scott, if you want to come on up. But I just want to pray for us. We're going to take communion together. He'll give instruction for that, and then we're going to sing together. This is my hope. This is my, my, my desire. Let's sing to God. We have the song of the redeemed, amen? The ones who've been brought back and bought from sin, death, and hell into the glorious light of Almighty God through the, for the cross of Jesus Christ. We sing a different song. I remember in Psalm 96, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. In order to sing that new song, we have to acknowledge that an old song had died. Can we sing the song of the redeemed? Thank you.